Hello and welcome to the 15th episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. I'm Anna Pretoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Presenting with me as usual is Maura McIntosh who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team and today we also have Alexander Kritosov who is a, a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, Maura will talk about some recent or upcoming developments relating to disclosure, jurisdiction and the new Chancery Guide. I'll then discuss two recent decisions relating to privilege, or more specifically, loss of privilege and the application of the without prejudice rule. And finally, Alex will look at the impact of the UK sanctions regime on proceedings in the English court involving sanctioned Russian parties. So I'll hand over to Maura to start. Thanks, Hannah. First, I want to talk about the disclosure pilot, or as we'll have to get used to saying, uh, practice direction 57 AD, because that's the practice direction which will implement the pilot on a permanent basis for the business and property courts from the 1st of October. Now, it's no great surprise. It was widely anticipated that the pilot would be implemented in some form, though many practitioners, myself included, have expressed some scepticism as to whether the pilot has actually reduced the time and costs involved in the disclosure process, which was meant to be its key aim. Now, in announcing the changes, the Chancellor recognised that the pilot has led to a front-loading of costs, but he said it's also led to a dramatic decline in specific disclosure applications and a far more focused and efficient approach generally. And the Master of the Rolls said it reduces unnecessary disclosure and increases the party's focus on the real issues in the case. Now, of course, I can't disagree with all of that, but I think the question is whether those benefits could be achieved with a less complex set of rules. Anyway, we are where we are on that. There are some amendments to the pilot rules as implemented in 57 AD, but really nothing very dramatic. So in essence, the uh, existing pilot rules will be implemented in, in more or less their, their current form from the beginning of October. Another big change coming in from the 1st of October is the introduction of new and expanded gateways for service out of the jurisdiction, uh, essentially broadening the grounds on which a party can apply for permission to serve proceedings on a defendant abroad, though permission will still be subject to the question of whether there's a serious issue to be tried on the merits and also whether England is the appropriate forum for the dispute to be heard. So it's still by no means a free-for-all. Uh, I won't go into the detail on all this because Anna spoke about the new provisions in our last podcast at the end of June. So you can always go back and, and listen to that if you want a reminder. Another development relating to cross-border disputes is the ratification of the Hague Judgments Convention 2019 uh, by both the EU and the Ukraine on the 29th of August this year, um, though it actually won't come into force until the 1st of September 2023. Uh, the convention will apply to the enforcement of judgments as between, on the one hand, uh, EU member states, apart from Denmark, and on the other hand, Ukraine. Um, and it will apply if the proceedings leading to the judgment were commenced after that date, after the 1st of September next year. 
Um, now, it's widely anticipated that the UK will consult on whether to join the convention. And frankly, it's difficult to see why we wouldn't want to join, uh, because that would facilitate the enforcement of English judgments in the EU, uh, and of course, vice versa, as well as in Ukraine and other countries that ultimately join up to the convention. Um, so that would be good news, uh, particularly in circumstances where the European Commission has not exactly welcomed the UK's application to rejoin the Lugano Convention. Um, though I should say that even if we joined up to Hague tomorrow, it would still be some time before it applied to any judgment. Um, there's a 12-month waiting period before the convention takes effect for a new contracting state, uh, and then it only applies where proceedings were issued after the convention's in force for that new state. Um, so it does take some time before it will apply, but still um, it would bring some welcome certainty in the in the relatively short term. And then finally, for me, uh, just a mention of the new Chancery Court Guide that came into force in late July. Um, I was part of the working group that dealt with the update, and I can confirm that it, it's a pretty major rewrite, uh, rather than just some tinker, tinkering around the edges. Um, it's no shorter than the previous edition. In fact, it's longer in some areas, uh, but hopefully it's, it's more user-friendly, uh, including because it includes hyperlinks to court rules and other material that's referred to, uh, and it contains some, I think, very useful new guidance, uh, for example, on remote hearings uh, and also new detailed provisions relating to court applications. Thanks, Maura. I'll start off with a case on privilege, which also touches on expert evidence. The case is Pickett and uh, Barkind, where the claimant sought an adjournment of the trial because its expert witness would not be available as he would be recovering from eye surgery. In applying for the adjournment, the claimant solicitor exhibited a letter from the expert, which, as well as explaining about his upcoming surgery, sought comments on the expert's draft joint statement and referred to comments already received from counsel. The defendant's solicitors wrote to the claimant's solicitors, expressing concern that the letter revealed a breach of court guidance, which stipulates that legal advisers must not be involved in negotiating or drafting the expert's joint statement. The claimant solicitors responded that the letter was privileged and the fact that it was included in full in the exhibit rather than in redacted form was an obvious mistake and they sought an injunction to prevent the use of the full version of the letter. The judge expressed some doubt as to whether the relevant section of the letter was privileged since it uh, revealed a potentially serious breach of court guidance and as the principle is, is sometimes um, expressed, there is no confidence in iniquity. But he didn't base his decision on that principle. It's well known that if a party accidentally discloses privileged material and the mistake is obvious, the court can grant an injunction to prevent use. But here, the judge found that the mistake wasn't obvious, and even if an injunction could be justified on other grounds, the judge held that an injunction should not be granted in this case because the letter revealed the potentially serious breach of court guidance. 
So really, there are two key messages. First, even if an injunction might otherwise be justified, the court may refuse to grant an injunction where the privileged material reveals some sort of wrong on the part of the disclosing party, whether or not there is sufficiently serious misconduct to engage the iniquity principle. Now, that might not be surprising since an injunction is a a discretionary remedy and so brings in the clean hands principle, but it's still worth bearing in mind. The second point is a reminder that legal advisors have to be very careful not to interfere in the preparation of experts' joint statements. The lawyer's role is limited to identifying issues that the statement should address. The lawyer shouldn't invite the experts to consider amendments to the draft statement, except in exceptional circumstances where there are serious concerns that its terms may be unclear or misleading, in which case those concerns should be raised with all experts involved in the joint statement. Next, I want to look at a case in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, Sport Radar and Football Data Co., which is interesting mainly for its discussion of the application of the without prejudice rule. The issue was whether that rule applied to an email between contractual counterparties, which noted that the contract was subject to a three-year break point, which would arise in the next few months. It proposed a deal by which the sender would not exercise its termination right in return for the counterparty's agreement to a particular interpretation of an indemnity contained in the contract, about which there there had been disagreement, as well as a number of commercial points. The recipient of the email argued that the email was not without prejudice because, first, the indemnity issue had not matured into a dispute sufficient to give rise to the rule and because the email addressed a number of commercial issues as well as the indemnity issue. The tribunal held that the email was covered by the without prejudice rule in its entirety. It rejected the argument that the indemnity issue was so subsidiary to other commercial matters in the negotiation that without prejudice privilege did not arise. There was no authority for separating out the primary aims of a negotiation from subsidiary ones in that way, and it would be contrary to the public policy rationale of encouraging parties to resolve disputes without litigating. As to whether there was a dispute sufficient to give rise to without prejudice privilege, the tribunal said the test was not to be confused with the test that applies to the application of litigation privilege, that is, whether litigation is in reasonable contemplation. The question was whether, assessed objectively, the parties had contemplated or might reasonably have contemplated litigation if they did not agree, and that test was met. Personally, I'm I'm not sure that there is a huge difference between those tests, and they're no doubt likely to go hand in hand in most cases. But it might leave open an argument that there is perhaps a slightly lower threshold for without prejudice than litigation privilege. That's it from me. 
I'll now hand over to Alex. Thanks, Anna. As I'm sure everyone listening will know, the UK is one of the many countries which introduced extensive sanctions against Russia, its individuals and entities in light of the military action in Ukraine, which began in February. And uh, although the UK sanctions regime does not restrict court proceedings against sanctioned individuals and entities, it can give rise to practical difficulties in pursuing such claims, including delays or issues with enforcement. And the key aspect of the sanctions regime for these purposes is the targeted freezing of assets of those designated under the regime. A list of designated persons is maintained by the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, actually, or OFSI, but it's important to note that the asset freeze restrictions also extend to entities owned or controlled by a designated person, whether directly or indirectly. And the test for whether an entity is owned or controlled is very broad, extending in, in simple terms to entities that can reasonably be expected to uh, conduct their affairs in accordance with the designated person's wishes. So, just because a particular company is not on the off-sea list, it doesn't mean it is not affected by the restrictions. And when I refer to a designated person, I'm including all those on, on the off-sea list, as well as, as well as the entities owned or controlled in this sense. There are two key limbs to the asset freeze restrictions. First, the designated person's funds and economic resources are frozen, meaning that they cannot be used or dealt with in any way. And second, no funds or economic resources may be made available for use by or for the benefit uh, of the designated person. So, Although the UK sanctions do not prohibit designated persons from being legally represented, the asset freeze restrictions introduce obvious practical hurdles in that they prevent a designated person from accessing funds to pay legal fees unless a license is obtained from offsea. This can, of course, cause delays in legal proceedings, if the designated person's lawyers are not willing to continue to act pending the grant of a license and therefore seek to come off the court record, particularly as a license application may take months to resolve. I understand that OFSI is considering whether some more general mechanism may be found to enable reasonable legal fees to be paid without the need for individual license applications, but so far no such solution has been introduced. It is also worth noting that the BVI courts have recently held that a designated person's lawyers should not be permitted to come off the record, at least until they had applied for a license and the application had been determined. I'm not aware of any English court decisions on the point, so it remains to be seen whether the English courts will take a similar approach. Another question is where a designated person's lawyers do come off the record. 
what is the likely impact on the proceedings. In general, where parties are unrepresented, the English courts have tended to take a relatively tough approach and have expected them to continue to comply with applicable rules and deadlines despite the absence of representation. But the present context may be slightly different. In a couple of recent cases, the courts have adjourned trials to allow sanctioned parties to obtain a license to enable their lawyers or a new legal team to act and be paid. So although a lot will depend on the circumstances of each case, it seems that uh, the courts may be prepared to make some concessions for designated persons who are struggling to obtain legal representation due to the asset freeze restrictions, at least uh, where this would be necessary for a fair trial. Another issue is that the payment of court fees or payment of funds into court, such as uh, for security for costs, um, is also restricted by the asset freeze. So is, it is generally not possible without a license. It may be possible for someone other than the designated person to fund such payments. For example, the legal representatives may be willing to fund the payments pending the grant of a license and later invoice them as disbursements. But this will be prohibited by the asset freeze restrictions if the payments would provide the designated person with a, uh, quote, significant financial benefit. And whether a court fee or other payment is significant would have to be considered on the facts. Um, another major difficulty that parties may face in proceeding against designated persons relates to the ability to enforce money judgments. Um, subject to licensing, the asset freeze restrictions would prevent enforcement against the assets of the designated persons in the UK and would also prevent a UK person from receiving the assets of a designated person. One ground on which OFSI may grant a license is to enable the use of frozen assets to satisfy a pre-existing judicial decision. But uh, as is clear from the name, this only applies if the judgment was obtained before the judgment debtor became a designated person. If the judgment creditor is a non-UK person and so falls outside the UK sanctions regime, there is nothing in that regime to prevent them enforcing an English court judgment against asset outside the UK. But uh, of course, a non-UK party, a non-UK company may have British officers and employees uh, who would be required to comply with UK sanctions or the judgment creditor may be subject to similar restrictions uh, under the sanctions regimes put in place uh, by other countries. So it is an area that needs to be considered carefully before enforcement steps are taken. Thank you, Alex Amora, and to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We'll be back with another update in a couple of months.